Uh, many of you know this, this story or know this thing about me, but I really have been a fan, maybe you are too, of like close-up magic. If you, can, if you can do cool tricks, card tricks, whatever else, with somebody just staring at you, and like that's just, you have a specific skill, kind of, you know, like it's just Liam Neeson style, right? You have a very specific set of skills, and you know how to use them, and I just find myself in awe of that. And it's funny because I've always loved that. I remember being a college student and going to New Orleans, and they had at this time a store in a mall called Magic Masters. And I would go to it, and the guy would just stand. He would sell like you know like high end magic tricks to you. That's what he would do. He would do the trick, and then of course he'd want you to buy the trick. And of course I would. Somehow, in all the moves we've done since I was a college student, an RA at Kirby Smith Hall at LSU, which doesn't even exist anymore, it has since been just like totally gone. I have kept with me, it's made it in every move, it's made it through singleness to marriage, Dallas to Baton Rouge, to Baton Rouge again in another move, to here in another move, something this big that I bought from Magic Masters. I don't know how it's made it the entire time, but it has. It's just a neat thing for me. And it's funny because, in fact, my own story of coming to the Lord, realizing his grace toward me, happened by way of, I would say, a poor close-up magician. He didn't do a great job. Uh, You could kind of tell what the tricks were as he was doing them, but he was sharing Christ, and he was doing kind of cool magic tricks. And for whatever reason, because the circumstances really don't matter that much, do they? When he shared who Christ was and what Christ has done, it changed me. And I was like, I want to believe that. Don't really care for your magic tricks, but whatever you're saying is true, and I, shortly thereafter, I went to my youth pastor that evening, and I just said, I need a change. I need a change. That was what I said. It's, it's, it's interesting because maybe your own salvation story is like that. Maybe the way God has changed you, maybe the way God has grown you, maybe the way God has challenged you, but, but where it's just it's an uncommon moment. It's an uncommon thing that transforms your life. It wasn't expected. You weren't looking for it. The way it happened kind of surprised you. And yet here you are, redeemed by Jesus through whatever strange means and mechanisms were employed, God used to bring about his end. You know, that is God's way to use uncommon means to bring about his salvation. He uses uncommon means and he uses uncommon people and we're going to be looking at that these next two weeks both in the story of Ehud and Eglon or uh, in the story of Deborah and Barak. How does God use uncommon means and how does God use uncommon people to secure the victory that he has promised for his people, the salvation, the deliverance that he has promised. And so you heard Nick read it. We are in Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30, with 31 being like this you know, Shamgarian addendum where a guy kills 600 people with a farming implement. It kind of pivots us between chapter 3 and chapter 4, Shamgar, and what he is able to do. So what we will see as we go through that is a move of disobedience, the way God delivers, and then why it even matters. I want to start, though, by saying there is some debate over whether or not Ehud is even a good dude. 
Like, you kind of have to land on that first before, because if you land on he's not good, he's not noble, he's not anything that we should learn from except that he didn't trust God and he did crazy things, then we have a totally different sermon on our hands. And so it's funny, I'm using kind of two commentaries as I do my work in Judges, and commentary one's like, dude's great, fine, not like exemplary, but he's, he's someone we should learn from. And then the other one's like, terrible dude, don't go anywhere near him. And so I have both of these people who have studied the book of Judges landing in totally different places. Fine by me, right? Because it is a little bit of how do you piece the text together. And we don't follow any one judge, but I do think that Ehud is actually uh, an imperfect, incredibly imperfect example of faithfulness in some capacity. We know the condition of the land is not in good. It's just not good. The entire era of the judges is a bad era. We see that with the repetitive statement in 17 through 21. At that time, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we have to go, well, as we go through these, these stories of judges, why were they included? Why were they included? And I think we're going to see a few things as we go through it, as we look at the disobedience, the deliverance, and the relevance for us. Uh, but here's the first thing, is that disobedience strangles, but a stranglehold on God's people. You see this in verses 12 through 14. And why I say stranglehold is because this is now the first time you're seeing alliances form in the book of Judges to oppress God's people. And you see God's hand strengthening the Ehud, uh, or Eglon against Ehud, against God's people. So disobedience strangles us, strangles God's people. That's what we see in 12 through 14. So we have again in 12 this common cycle. The people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Interesting that now God is actually being shown as active in what's happening here. He's using this as a way to discipline and teach his people. So the Lord strengthened Eglon against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He, that would be Eglon, gathered himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of the Palms, maybe Jericho or around Jericho, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. The reason I say strangles us is because you, you see the ratcheting up of intensity. The Otniel story, there was some oppression, but it was quickly dismissed. You have now a next step where, we, where now somebody has been strengthened against the people of Israel. The Lord uses Eglon, the king of Moab, to strengthen it. And he has surrounding people and people that weren't driven out. Now it feels a lot tighter in regard to the amount of consequence for sin that is being experienced. But I would just say this, because I think we've seen it as true. When we live in the rhythms of the world, we will feel the pressure mounting. To either keep up and get choked out, or the need to turn and walk openly and freely with the Lord. You know, constrictors, the kind of snake... This is about stabbing people in the belly and stuff like that. So we're talking about, you know, death a lot today. But constrictors hunt and choke their prey. 
just surrounding them with all their muscles, surrounding them and being sure they cannot move and will you know, swallow goats whole like it's nothing. Now, I don't know how easily you move after that, but I mean, just grab it, come around, and choke it out. And interesting, Jesus even uses the illustration of choking. When you love the world or you love the world's ways, the worries of the world, the concerns of the world, they come up and they choke out the seed that is planted. Well, 18 years, 18 years of serving, being in, you know, enslaved and, and um, attacked by Eglon, the king of Moab, because again, you aren't listening to the voice of the Lord. You really can't cozy up to disobedience. You don't even want to become familiar with it because it is a jealous oppressor. It wants more of your time. It wants more of your energy. It wants more of your attention. It's death by a thousand paper cuts. And Maybe you've even experienced this in some way where you are receiving the consequences of your disobedience for not heeding the Lord's word, for not having confidence in what he has said, for not believing it. Rather than confess your sin and walk in the freedom that exists for you in Christ, you hide it. You don't want your friends and family to know because uh, you're embarrassed that you've had a little too much to drink. And you're really just confident that you, in your own strength, can work it out. You're sure you can lick it this time. We all in our pride, our ego, and our arrogance think we can handle our own sins as many times as we return to Jesus and go, will you forgive me? And he does. We still think we can do it. Or it has been so long since we've had an issue or a struggle or a sin or an area of disobedience that we're too embarrassed to admit it because it feels like we shouldn't have that one anymore. And what begins to happen? Death by a thousand paper cuts. The the force of that surrounds us. And we can no longer handle the pressure of disobedience. Well, when that happens, what needs to go on? But we need to be delivered. We can't do it on our own. And so as the cycle, we'll see this in every judge story just about, as the cycle goes, what happens? The people cry out, and God responds to his people's cries. Now, they're crying out really in desperation. They're crying out because it has gotten so bad that they have nowhere else to go until it gets better. You go back and forth as you read the book of Judges and God's people crying out. You go back and forth on, it's a f- do they really mean it? And a lot of the times it does seem like a I've been caught kind of crying out. It just has been too bad. I can't do it anymore. God help, right? How many of us pray God help me prayers? We don't even have anything else. Yeah, help, help. That's right, help, help. You know, like, I don't know how we're going to get out of this thing. I don't know what we're going to do. I've really screwed it up. Help. And that's all we have. That's all we have. It's funny because even sometimes in half-heartedness, God responds because his concern is more for his own glory than it is for us in that sense. Jesus builds his church. 
And so even with imperfect leaders and imperfect people and imperfect members and imperfect mission and imperfect everything, even with all of that, what? It just keeps happening. The church continues to go. It continues to herald the gospel. It continues to see lives change. It continues to see communities transformed. Why? Because God is jealous for his name. So the people cry out, and the Lord raises up for them a deliverer. God responds to his people's cries, and it happens every time. It might be delayed. There may be a time of, of, of chastening. There might be a time of discipline. But God responds to his people's cries. And he raises up Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Benjamin means son of my right hand. So you got a left-handed man and a right-handed tribe. More of them are going to show up later. But, but it's interesting that he highlights the left-handedness of the guy. I'm not a lefty. I have one lefty in the family. And if you are a lefty, you know it's a different kind of world. Everything's different. We don't make life for left-handed people. You know, they write, we write, you know, if you were like, if you wrote in Hebrew or Arabic, it'd be perfect. But we are a right-handed people and the left-handers just have to live in this world. He's a left-handed man, and this comes into play in what he is about to do in verse 16. He made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And so he wore larger clothes, and he had this sword in a place where his left hand could use it. The assumption being that if you go to visit the king and they kind of pat you down, they assume because you've been in subjection for 18 years that this is probably not an assassination attempt. And so they pat you down, they check where the right-handed person might have a weapon. They don't see anything, and he's about to do what he does. But what they do is he gets ready, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And Eglon was a very fat man. Why that needs to be in there, well, it'll show up later. He was a well-fed man, the way that he is described. He didn't miss a meal. And it's even interesting just in the, the way that this is illustrated. It is interesting to see how this looks because you have an oppressor who has fattened himself on God's people. This is the same rebuke God gives to his own shepherds in the book of Ezekiel, that they have gotten fat on the meat of the sheep. that They have not fed the sheep, but they have slaughtered the sheep. You have this man who has sucked the resources and the life out of the nation. Ehud is going to go to him. A deliverer is raised up. God raises him up. So God strengthens Eglon, and God raises up Ehud. Something that we just need to remember, put it in your Bibles, put it in your note. You're going to see it all the time uh, throughout the book of Judges, but it's God's victory. You can write that every time. It's God's victory. Even with human agents and everybody doing what they do, sometimes stepping up faithfully and other times not stepping up faithfully. In fact, next week you're going to see Deborah be incredibly faithful and you're going to see Barak kind of cower. He just doesn't want to do what God has set him up to do and what God has spoken for him to do. But we have a left-handed man coming onto the scene from a right-handed tribe. He's a warrior who creates a weapon and he is a planner because he's seizing the moment that God's God has provided for him. Now, this is, this is a beautiful thing about God. 
Because, because God, you read it like this, God is predisposed to caring for his people. Like, like it's, it's not like every time you sin, you go back to zero with God. He is inclined to forgive. He is inclined to care. He is invested because it is his namesake. And so even when the people are disobedient and they're not really listening, they're not worshiping fully, the idols are still in the land. You even read that in the story that, that he turned around at the idols. That's not a positive thing. But in all of this, what do we see? God's predisposition to deliver his people, to care for his people, to save his people. And it is so good, and this is something I remind myself of just about every day, is that God loves me. He loves me, and it's not earned. It is because it is in him to love me. And the son came and gave his life that I might have life. And so I have to remember in this the predisposition of God to be concerned about his people and what goes on in that. He's not only predisposed to it, he initiates the relationship. The disobedience of the Israelites results in the oppression, but God raised up even in that the oppressor. And as they cry out, God raises up in that the warrior, the judge. God initiates his care toward us. And so we get to see then in that the deliverance that comes. I like it. Have it you can have it read. Um, I'll tell an embarrassing story about something like that at another time. God delivers... In unexpected ways, that's Judges 18 through 30. Unexpected ways. So we're going to have a couple of movements here as we see God delivering in unexpected ways. Movement one is just this deception that Ehud uses against Eglon. So they go and they bring tribute, which makes sense. And again, 18 years, so he's kind of lulled to sleep by this. But he brings tribute to him. And then he turns back at Gilgal and he uses the spiritual interest of Eglon in this moment to get an audience with him, to get extra time with him. And so he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded silence, and all of his attendants went out of his presence. Can we have the room, please? He's going to hear a word from God. He's going to hear a word from God. It's so funny to me today, even how we long for like words from God when we have God's word. Like, like, like we're reading it. We have it. And yet we want like this secret thing, right? Like we see this in our kind of dispositionally in us where we want some kind of extra knowledge, some kind of extra information. And so when the Israelite comes and goes, I have a secret message for you. It's like, well, let's hear it. Special man gets to hear a special, a special message. Verse 20, Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. It's going to be hot, and so they're sitting in places where it will be cooler. You get a breeze on the roof, and so you sit on the roof with good windows, as long as it's not the rainy season, and you'll be fine. So he says, I have a message from God for you, and he arose from his seat because now he wants to hear it. There's a pretty good chance that all of this is going on with the doors open. Like the servants are outside of the room in another kind of waiting area. 
and that Ehud did not want to bring attention to this so the doors aren't closed. Because when the doors close, any parent knows the doors close, you go, what's going on in there, right? So doors close. So there's a good chance that what's going on right here is being done with the doors open to not even draw attention to what's going on here. And so he arose from his seat because he wants to hear the message. He pulls out the knife and he stabs Eglon in the stomach and his guts fall out. The knife comes back over the hand, over the, or the gut comes out over the knife. And then what does Ehud do? He closes the doors, locks them up, just walks out like nothing, like nothing. And so he's playing to his interests and he's leaving quietly as nothing's a problem. And I want to, I want to stop here because the reason I say that I, I think that in this you know, it's like, fight like a man, right? Like, come out here and, you know, like, all that kind of stuff that we'll do. I do think there was some understanding in Ehud's mind on who God was and who God's people were. And that the victory is secured by God. That God has his people in a land for a reason. And so he fought. This doesn't mean go be an assassin, but he leaves quietly as if nothing were a problem. And now we get this mounting story that is coming. And it's coming because the doors are locked and they assume he's in the restroom. And they wait, verse 25, until they were embarrassed. Showing you that there's enough delay that Ehud can actually get out and be far enough that nobody's even going to look for him. We've all done this. I mean, seriously, we have done this where, you know, one of our kids goes to the bathroom and you're looking at your watch going, golly, are they okay? Like, is everything okay? I mean, like, this is the, the rawness of this story right here. It's like, I, you know, you can knock on the door. And so that's where they get. They finally have to get into the room and there, look at this. There lay their Lord dead on the floor because an oppressor has no standing with God. Ever. There lays their Lord dead on the floor. Who's not dead? The one true God. Who has fought and won at this point in time this victory over this nation, the one true God? Who had the confidence in this to go before an oppressor king, even in a cunning way that left and resulted in his death? Ehud, the one raised up by God. This actually then leads, because now you have a rudderless ship, you have a kingless people, leaderless. This leads now to the rallying of the Israelites against the Moabites. And so Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols. So now he's kind of like, it's almost like those are boundaries of safety. He's gotten past them, and so now you know you're good. He's out of the city limits. And he arrived and he sounded the trumpet of the hill country of Ephraim. And then the people of Israel went down from the hill country. And he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me. Look at how he says this. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Follow after me. For the Lord has given 
the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fjords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. The thorough squashing of God's enemies after 18 years of oppression. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. 80 years. This is generation-changing deliverance, isn't it? I mean, how many even parents in the room or grandparents in the room or aspiring parents in the room would love to secure generational peace for their family? I would. The start of NBA free agency has begun, and this is just where teams hand out bajillions of dollars. I mean, if you're a Rockets fan, you know. Lots and lots of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. And people will say, they now have generational wealth. Meaning, your kids, your grandkids, their kids, you're good. However, let's stop for a moment. For you and where you are and what you would like to secure. Do you want to secure generational peace? Probably. But I think eternal peace is more significant, isn't it? You'd probably rather secure something that isn't going to end. You'd probably rather secure something that isn't going to have a you know, best buy date on it. You want something that's lasting. That's what Jesus offers. Lasting peace and deliverance in a world of oppressors. The reason this is just for me so beautiful, even in this story, even in the message, is because I tell you what, especially for you young boys in the room, like Judges is brutal. It is violent. There is fighting all the time. People are dying. People are cowards. I mean, next week, just get ready. A tent peg is going to play an important role in a man's head. And the way the story is told, and this is now, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm preemptively laughing. Right, like, these are Holy Spirit-inspired words, right? That like, it went through his head and into the ground, in the other side, and thus he died. Right, like, like we, we at Genesis believe that this is what the Spirit inspired. This wasn't just some story to tell. God wants us to know just how, how willing, able, and determined he is to let you know that he is going to destroy any oppressor of his people. And we see that in the ministry of Jesus. So what do we do when we see a story like this that's so brutally violent? We go, well, Ehud lied, so I can lie to my parents if it's good, right? Like, yeah, I could lie to my parents or bring a knife to a party that I shouldn't bring a knife to. Or, you know, I'm left-handed. There's all these kinds of ways we, we look at things, right? Be left-handed. And, like, God loves left-handed people more than right-handed people. 
All these ways will try and make some kind of relevance out of this, but here's what I would say. And you're going to see these actually come into play this week and next. I do think that Judges is, is teaching us something in these next two stories that, that build on each other. Okay? Here's what I see. Is that there is a, a battle that is to be fought. There is somebody placed in that battle, Ehud, who understands at that point in time who God is enough to lead his people in victory. He recognizes the weight and the strength of the story. And then after he takes out Eglon, the very fat man, who had a brutal death and an embarrassing story to go along with it, after that happens, he leads the people to kill the Moabite oppressors. But he knew something. He knew something about God. He knew something about the victory. And he even says that when he says that in verse 28, the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. He recognizes this is God's victory, not his. We're going to see problems in that in a couple of weeks where, where Gideon, who has a, kind of an interesting start, has a struggle at the end of his life with how important he has become for the people. He thinks it becomes much more about him. Well, at this point in time, we have Ehud who recognizes the Lord's victory and there's peace in the land for 80 years. So I'm going to say this. You're going to just go with me here as we develop it out. So I'm going to say it like this. By faith, by faith, seize unique opportunities to work for God's purposes. Seize unique opportunities to work for God's purposes. Now, here's what I mean. The Christian life is lived by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We are justified by faith. We operate in faith. If we're not walking by faith, we're walking by sight. You're going to see sight and faith show up right there, hand in hand, next week when Barak is afraid to go to battle because of the number of chariots that the oppressors have. His army seems too big. The Christian life is a life lived by faith, yet so often we try to live it by sight. What do we see? What do we know? What can we handle? What can we afford? So that's the first thing. We just have to start with that. We also have to start with understanding this in the left-handed Benjaminite. Nobody, nobody in this room is picked by God because we had what it took. We are obscure, odd people. We're odd people with odd ailments and weird dispositions, and we're weak. And God uses weak people. He uses weak people. He saves weak people. So that's thing number one, as we begin, by faith sees these opportunities. But thing number one, our life in Christ is by faith. Thing number two, nobody's picked because we have what it takes. Well, why didn't you so-and-so? They're stronger. They're better. This is Gideon's thing. Who am I? Who are you? Me? Valiant? Nah. I'm a coward. The Lord uses even cowards. But we have to then think about this in regard to what we understand from the Apostle Paul. When he says our battle isn't against flesh and blood, we don't have a physical enemy as a Christian that we are trying to defeat. 
in that sense. We, we are in a spiritual battle. The glory of God, for the souls of men, women, and children. Fought with his word, fought with his spirit. So we fight with different tools than knives attached to our thighs. We fight with scripture, we fight with prayer, we fight differently. I actually put it this way, with God's enablement, we have the best tools for the fight. Scripture, his people, prayer, direct access to God. We have the best message. It's not just immediate deliverance from your oppressor, but eternal deliverance in a relationship with the one person who will never be defeated. And we have the best resource for boldness in God's spirit. And so when I say seize the opportunities God's given you, is that each person that we're going to read about, even in their failures, is raised up at a specific time in a specific way, and God uses those people to bring about your deliverance. God uses bad, close-up magic with a gospel presentation to save a guy like me. God uses a random conversation that you might have with somebody at the checkout aisle to send you in a completely different trajectory. And all of these moments come about when prepared people by faith step into whatever situation God has placed them into. Recognizing there's a greater battle and a greater victor and a greater victory And they, with confidence, step in to where God has put them. So, how might this look? Let's say you're at work tomorrow morning. And you realize that a co-worker has had a tough weekend. Many people have tough weekends. What do you have for them? What do you have for them? Well, the words of Ehud might be similar, but the message itself is different. You have a true message from God for them about a Savior who came to seek and save the lost that you can bring. You can bring a message that calls them away from their sin and toward life in Christ. Seize the opportunities God has put before you, the relationships, the place, the left-handedness, the moments, the gifts that are there within you. Seize those things. Recognize them as something from God and step into whatever place that they are. When you see in your house your kids continually fighting and bickering and getting frustrated over the same things over and over and over and over again and all you want is for them to be quiet. That's all you want. I mean, at our house, we've stopped putting our kids to bed almost. I'm like, it's 11 o'clock. Are you guys playing Monopoly still? Like, I kid you not, that's going on all the time right now. I'm like, well, hey, when you're ready, you know, we'll pray, whatever. But, like, you have to come into our room now because we're getting late. But when they're fighting and they're frustrated, whatever else, what can I do, right? I can come in and meet them angrily, or what can I do? I can point them to the Lord. Remind them of his heart. That God has given me a unique audience with three boys. And I'll tell you what, not for a sermon, but I would gladly laugh and have stories about the conversations we had last night because I was sweating and crying laughing at how 
just how fun it is to be a dad, but also how, I was like, I thought we had talked about this a whole lot. I guess we haven't. But you can direct them. But so often, so often, we don't recognize what God has even put within us. We're always waiting for like a Nehu to, to rise up. <clears throat> Ultimately, Jesus rose up, but Jesus has given you salvation, his spirit, gifts, ways to operate, ways to serve, ways to care, ways to grow, a message to deliver that is far superior and far more beautiful than anything that this world can offer. This is what we have at our disposal. So when I say seize opportunities by faith that God has given you, it's recognizing that he hasn't given you your marriage, your family, your street, your job, anything as a mistake, but to raise you up for a unique purpose. I mean, God would be so deliberate, even in one's life, to give them left-handedness. Like, this isn't just some mistake, where it's like, well, God doles out a certain percentage of right-handedness and a certain percentage of left-handedness. This had a unique purpose, but unless we walk by faith, we don't realize what God has even endowed us with. In fact, if we walk by sight, which is so often what you or I might do, we often talk about what we don't have. That's what sight does. Sight talks about what you don't have. Well, I I don't have enough knowledge. I don't know the Bible well enough to have. What what if my neighbor says something I'm not prepared to answer? Welcome. I, I don't. I don't believe that I, I know how to communicate well enough. I don't, right? All of these things that are by sight and not by faith, we really need to die to them. Recognizing overall the victory is the Lord's. So as we step into that, how might God use us and move us? Because we don't go in our own power, we don't go in our own strength. We go in the confidence that God is working his plans out and has people to save. God will have victory over Eglon. God will have victory over your addictions. God will have a victory over your oppression that you feel, over your anger. God will have victory over it all, but we walk in these things by faith. We recognize what he has by faith to be able to step in in these moments. I do not know what the rest of Ehud's judgeship looked like. I know it resulted in what scripture would say, two generations of peace. I know one story of a guy who stepped in at one time to secure peace for a nation for 80 years. We have in that a greater story, a greater message, a greater deliverance, and a greater power. So let's by faith walk in these spaces that God has given us to declare his mercy and his goodness and his care to a world that is being strangled by its sin and doesn't even know it. And speak that message God has.